0: Chapter 17, Part 1: Innovation in the Face of War, Summer to Fall 2005, of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1, by U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Chapter 17: Innovation in the Face of War. Summer to Fall 2005. Page 445. With almost a division's worth of coalition combat power moved from central Iraq to the Syrian border zone by midsummer, General George Casey Jr.'s operations to reestablish control of the Syria Iraq border were ready to begin. An operation in western Nineveh and an operation in western Anbar would seek to disrupt al-Qaeda in Iraq, or AQI's, lines of communications from its Syrian sanctuary in time to protect the October constitutional referendum and the December elections that were crucial to the U.S. political strategy for Iraq. The ensuing battles in Tel Afar and Al-Qaim would showcase several innovative units employing tactics that had been refined and distilled over the first two years of the war. In broader terms, these organic innovations represented a larger trend in which tactical units were learning to conduct counterinsurgency operations through experience and self-study. Curiously, while these tactical units would find surprisingly successful approaches to local security problems, the coalition's large-scale strategic-level initiatives experienced slow starts at best in the second half of 2005. Counterinsurgency Rediscovered Page 445 The Counterinsurgency Survey Casey had arrived in Iraq convinced that stabilizing the country would require a counterinsurgency approach, with American troops working through indigenous forces rather than conducting high-intensity security operations themselves, and he had emphasized this concept in his April 2005 campaign plan. He had also been concerned that U.S. troops focused for three decades before 2003 on preparing for high-intensity force-on-force battles were not prepared for the kind of counterinsurgency fight that Iraq required. Accordingly, in late summer 2005, Casey dispatched a team of close advisors led by Colonel William Hicks and Kalev Gunner Sepp to survey the U.S. units in theater and assess whether they were following an appropriate approach and to compile a report of best practices. In August 2005, Hicks's team conducted its qualitative counterinsurgency survey by visiting five multinational divisions and nine of the 15 U.S. brigades that held territory in Iraq, as well as coalition units in Multinational Division Central South, or MNDCS, and Task Force Maison in southern Iraq. The team's field reports were illuminating. All U.S. forces in the country were committed, and the lack of a, quote, credible reserve force, end quote, at any level meant that units were unable to surge for any new initiatives or offensives. Quote, few, if any, units have enough troops to maintain any meaningful presence in an area after they clear it of insurgents, end quote, Hicks's team noted, quote, which only serves to create a vacuum that insurgents quickly refill, leaving units to re-clear an area again at a future time. Units are paying twice, sometimes three times, for the same terrain in too many cases. As a result, MNFI had created a situation that assumes risk everywhere. In Nineveh and Anbar, where coalition troops were sparse, the average coalition battalion was tasked with controlling over 2,000 square kilometers and 430,000 inhabitants. Under these conditions, the team concluded, quote, MNFI-MNCI should postpone any decision on off-ramping until at least spring 2006, end quote, in order to avoid, quote, a rush to failure by handing over battle space to ISF, or Iraqi security forces, before they are capable and ready, end quote. Another factor hampering operations the Hicks team found was that many of MNCI's unit boundaries did not take into account, quote, cultural, political, tribal, or traditional linkages, creating seams that the enemy is effectively exploiting, end quote. The rest of Babil province, for example, had been inexplicably split between Multinational Force West, or MNFW, and MNDCS allowing the enemy to launch attacks on one division's battle space and then cross the boundary when pursued. The report also recommended establishing a reconciliation council for disaffected Sunnis, such as those who refused or were unable to participate politically because of their Ba'athist ties, harnessing all elements of the U.S. interagency for the counterinsurgency campaign and ensuring transition teams had at least two years to mold the Iraqi security forces into shape. However, not all of these recommendations went to Casey and General John Abazade. Some of the team's leaders considered the conclusions too harsh and instead briefed a milder version of their findings to Casey on August 19th, focusing heavily on the performance of tactical units rather than on some of the problematic operational issues the team had uncovered. In terms of the coalition forces themselves, Hicks reported, quote, 20% of the brigades got it, 60% were in the middle, and 20% clearly didn't get it. End quote. While some units arrived in Iraq well prepared to conduct counterinsurgency operations immediately, many units underwent a difficult trial by fire because home station training lagged well behind the current situation in Iraq. U.S. units and their Iraqi counterparts were, quote, not yet sufficient to stop intimidation of the population and local Iraqi force, end quote, meaning that the bulk of security operations were not necessarily contributing to the security of the Iraqi people. Rather than increase combat power, refocus forces on protecting the population, or reorient the mission entirely, Hicks recommended a greater emphasis on governance and economics, for which the military had limited capacity. Many units focused only on killing or capturing the enemy and not engaging with Iraqis, Hicks told Casey. Much of MNFI's operational approach was not conducive to a counterinsurgency campaign, Hicks said, particularly MNFI's effort to build and train an indigenous military in its own image, and its ongoing concentration of coalition military units on large bases. Finally, the present counterinsurgency campaign, Hicks concluded, was a, quote, decentralized company and battalion fight, but without the commensurate resources and authority decentralized to the same levels, end quote. Casey disagreed with most of Hicks's conclusions except for the concept of denying the enemy access to the population, which he endorsed. Two days later, Hicks and his team presented the same findings to Abizade, though once again without emphasizing their findings of the insufficient number of coalition forces and the lack of a credible operational reserve. Hicks repeated his observation that, while military operations received most of the coalition's attention, much more needed to be done in the areas of governance and economics. Quote, Units are generally doing that ad hoc, end quote, Hicks noted, by, quote, pulling reservists with direct experience and other talented people out of their existing units and forming provincial reconstruction-type units, end quote. When Hicks suggested Abizade should request additional reservists with civilian skills related to governance, such as judges, mayors, city managers, and police chiefs, The U.S. Central Command or CENTCOM commander responded that taking responsibility for governance was not the military's core mission and that the rest of the government needed to contribute more effectively. Undeterred, Hicks pointed out that the army has been asked to do these functions since its founding. Without knowing it, Hicks had touched on a key issue for Abizade, who was engaged in a struggle inside the U.S. government to get agencies beyond the military involved in the campaign to stabilize Iraq. As he tried to mobilize non-military help, Abazade was not interested in Hicks's suggestion that the military should go ahead and do the civilians' jobs for them. The 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment and Colonel H.R. McMaster in Tel Afar Casey's operations to block the northern infiltration route across the Syrian border began in May 2005 with the movement of the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment from the Triangle of Death, south of Baghdad, to western Nineveh, an area that had not recovered from its fall to insurgent control six months before. As an economy of force sector, Multinational Brigade Northwest's, or MNBNW's, area of operations had not had sufficient coalition combat power to take the initiative against the insurgency. This was especially true in the restive, mixed-sect Turkoman city of Tel Afar, which played an outsized part in the Sunni insurgency. Tel Afaris, or Afiri, as Iraqis knew them, had been overrepresented in Saddam Hussein's army and intelligence services, giving the city an unusually high proportion of men with military experience. A number of senior Iraqi military leaders hailed from the city or its surrounding area, and after Saddam's fall, Some of them had relocated to Syria to facilitate insurgent attacks against the coalition, Kurds, and the new Shia-led government. The post-2003 environment in western Nineveh was one of sectarian strife among Tel Afar's population, which U.S. units estimated were approximately 60% Sunni and 40% Shia. Sunni Turkomans who had been loyal to Saddam's regime resisted the new ascendancy of Kurds, the Sunni Turkoman's natural enemies throughout northern Iraq, and the rise of the Shia Turkoman minority, which grew in power by aligning itself with the newly empowered Shia Islamist parties in Baghdad. In the months leading up to 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment's arrival in Tel Afar, parts of the primarily Shia Turkoman police force had effectively become sectarian death squads. The situation worsened in April 2005 when the Iraqi security forces responded to a request for assistance from Tel Afar's Shia Turkomans by deploying the Scorpion Brigade, an Arab-Shia special police unit from Hillah. The addition of the predominantly Shia unit with a fierce reputation for fighting Sunni insurgents inflamed the situation and, as the International Crisis Group put it, quote, Battles between government forces and insurgents turned into a fight between Sunnis and Shiites within the Turkoman community. End quote. The change of mission to Tel Afar was the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment's third assignment in Iraq. The regiment had originally expected to be assigned to Mosul but had been redirected to the Triangle of Death and, in fact, Multinational Corps Iraq, or MNCI, had kept one of the regiment's three maneuver squadrons behind in North Babil when the main body moved to Nineveh. The unit's flexibility in taking on these successive new missions reflected, in part, the approach its commander had taken in pre-deployment training. Colonel Herbert Raymond H.R. McMaster, the regimental commander, had authored an important study on the Vietnam War that concluded senior military leaders had been derelict in allowing President Lyndon Johnson's flawed strategy to continue with only muted internal protest. McMaster was also a student of counterinsurgency doctrine and practice, an often overlooked academic topic in the Cold War Army and the Army of the 1990s. Upon taking command in June 2004 and in anticipation of the unit's impending deployment, he had required his subordinate leaders to complete a reading list on counterinsurgency and Middle Eastern culture. In training, he had enlisted the aid of Arab Americans to play roles in a variety of tactical simulations, and to mitigate the regiment's dearth of Arabic interpreters, he had sent dozens of soldiers to Arabic immersion courses at a local college. Above all, he emphasized what he believed was the most important tenet of counterinsurgency, protecting the population. McMaster and his staff had designed their training programs with little help from the army, which was still grappling with the question of whether the Iraq campaign would last long enough to disrupt the standard training and education of, quote, core warfighting functions, end quote, and replace part of that instruction with preparations for counterinsurgency. Once in Nineveh, McMaster assigned his second squadron responsibility for the city of Tal Afar. The city, as the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment found it in May 2005, was one of the most violent in Iraq, with 170 attacks per month driven by 500 to 1,000 foreign and Iraqi insurgents mainly from AQI, Ansar al-Islam, and other groups that had fled the coalition onslaught in Fallujah in November 2004. These fighters had terrorized the city's population for months with suicide bombs and car bombs against civilians. Some of the insurgent violence was simply depraved, as when insurgents murdered a young boy and then rigged his body cavities with explosives that killed his father when the man came to retrieve his son from the street. As the insurgents had clamped down on the city before the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment's arrival, they had tortured and executed Tel Afaris who resisted them, while perversely conscripting local boys whom they systematically raped and trained to serve as assistants in executions. From May to August 2005, the regiment worked to isolate the city, cutting off insurgent lines of communications. West of Tel Afar, McMaster tasked his first squadron with disrupting insurgent infiltration routes along the 280-kilometer Syrian border in the regiment's area of operations and reconstituting the local Iraqi border police brigade. The first squadron's base was in Sinjar, a mixed-sect town containing Arabs, Kurds, and tens of thousands of Yazidis, a sect of ethnic Kurds who practiced an obscure ancient religion akin to Zoroastrianism. The first squadron found Sinjar, once a major stop on the ancient Silk Road, to be the major waypoint and safe haven for al-Qaeda and other militant foreign fighters making their way from Syria to the Tigris Valley. To understand its area of operations better, 1st Squadron conducted a zone reconnaissance that covered more than 340 kilometers of the border area, uncovering a vast network of safe houses, weapons caches, transportation companies, and passport counterfeiters, end quote. The operation resulted in over 300 border interdictions of foreign fighters and other contraband, Revealing both the depth of Syrian regime complicity and the degree to which the infiltration routes had been developed by AQI. On one mission, elements of an air cavalry troop found an insurgent led convoy of 40 trucks crossing the border through uninhabited desert. When Apache helicopters engaged with Hellfire missiles and cannons, the trucks fled back to Syria, but not before secondary explosions on several of the vehicles hit in the fusillade confirmed they were smuggling arms and munitions. With only two maneuver squadrons at his disposal, McMaster compensated for his dearth of infantry by partnering with the Iraqi 3rd Division, a Kurdish majority unit with three brigades arrayed across western Nineveh, and he formed a new light cavalry troop that was an equal mix of Iraqi and American soldiers. The one time surge of special forces for the Battalion Augmentation Training Team mission partnered an unprecedented nine operational detachment Alphas, or ODAs, two full special forces companies with his Armored Cavalry Regiment and the 3rd Division, enabling both an ODA and one of McMaster's troops or companies to pair with each Iraqi battalion. Some Iraqi battalions also benefited from partnered Military Transition Teams, or MITT. To partner with the Special Operations Forces, or SOF, in his battle space, McMaster co-located headquarters and attached an air cavalry troop, logistics element, and light reconnaissance troop to beef up SOF capabilities. At an early stage, McMaster and his subordinates identified a number of drivers of instability, including government-sanctioned sectarian retaliation against the Sunni majority, low rates of education and literacy, high unemployment, and a negative view of U.S. forces based on earlier military operations. Addressing these problems required not just security operations, but extensive engagement with local Sunni leaders to resolve local political differences. In this area, McMaster benefited greatly from the role of Major General Najim Abed Jabouri, a Sunni Arab from the Mosul area who had been assigned as Tal police chief in May after the firing of his insurgent Allied predecessor. Jabouri proved an able local diplomat, shuttling between Sunni and Shia Turkoman tribes with a 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment leader to broker ceasefires and organize opposition to AQI and other insurgent groups. Jiburi would later be appointed Tel mayor, a position he would hold from late 2005 until 2008. In June 2005, the Ministry of Defense announced that there would be a security operation to resolve the Tel situation, and a group of about 30 Sunni sheikhs traveled to Baghdad in July for a peace conference that resulted in a temporary but significant decrease in violence. At the same time, Local Shia leaders lobbied their government contacts in Baghdad to request support for re-establishing stability in the city. Operation Restoring Rights Despite these political initiatives, by July McMaster and his commanders had decided that driving al-Qaeda in Iraq and other insurgents completely from Tal Afar would require a major operation. Recognizing the piece he was playing in MNFI's plan to secure the October constitutional referendum and the December parliamentary elections, McMaster chose the name Operation Restoring Rights. However, he rejected the idea of a highly destructive clearing of the city similar to the assault on Fallujah or Operation Black Typhoon the previous fall, both of which McMaster believed had heightened local resentment toward the coalition. Instead, he aimed to conduct an operation that would kill or drive off the insurgents while having a much lighter impact on the civilian population and much less collateral damage. To effect this outcome, McMaster took steps to control and then displace Telefar's civilian population systematically so that insurgents could not hide among the populace and precipitate collateral damage. As a way to offset potential ill will from any disruption caused by the operation, He ordered the construction of a center for displaced iraqis capable of supporting over 1500 people and the stocking of humanitarian relief supplies to buffer the impact of the operation further mcmaster planned post-combat activities in advance aiming to jumpstart reconstruction efforts immediately after combat operations ceased he purchased transformers to restore the city's electrical grid contracted for teachers and instructional material to reopen schools and marshaled material and designs for reconstruction projects. McMaster also physically isolated the city. At the recommendation of 3rd Division Commander Major General Korshid Salim Aldoski, McMaster's troops spent three weeks building a 12-foot-high berm around the city that enclosed 15 square kilometers. With the berm in place, Telafaris could only drive vehicles through one of the four checkpoints manned jointly by Iraqi and U.S. soldiers, allowing for population control. Under the pressure of improved border security, the creation of the Berm, and better intelligence coming from a more friendly relationship with telefari civilians, the insurgents who had virtually controlled the city since late 2004 began to lose their freedom of maneuver, falling back on their stronghold in the town's Sarai district. For the actual clearance of the city, the regiment requested two additional U.S. infantry battalions and additional Iraqi security forces, but the troop-starved MNCI was only able to provide one U.S. battalion, 2nd Battalion, 325th Airborne Infantry Regiment, which would not arrive until several days after the operation had begun. To make up some of the shortfall, the Interior Ministry ordered a special police commando brigade to join the operation. However, the commandos and their Badr Corps-affiliated commander quickly proved to be a liability. When the poorly disciplined and ill-trained commando brigade arrived with empty trucks that its troops explained had been brought for, quote, liberating the furniture of Tel Afar, end quote, McMaster ordered the Iraqi commander to withdraw his troops from the city immediately, and the brigade played no part in the ensuing operation. Realizing he would not be receiving the reinforcements he needed, McMaster decided to accept risk on the Syrian border by splitting his first squadron and sending half of it to help clear West Tel Afar. In late August, the operation began with the displacement of almost all remaining civilians in the city. Constant messaging from the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment and Iraqi commanders explained that their intent was not to attack the city and its people, but to focus the assault against the Takfiri insurgents extremists who believed their doctrine of takfir obligated them to kill apostates that had held the population in thrall. At the beginning of September, judging there were still too many civilians inside the city to allow the attack to proceed without collateral damage, McMaster delayed the start of the operation by a day and told local Sunni leaders, quote, if you don't get your people out of there tomorrow, the blood is on your hands, End quote. As nearly 150,000 civilians departed the city, soldiers used screened informants at the four exits through the berm to identify and detain scores of fighters attempting to flee in disguise. On September 2nd, 2nd Squadron initiated a, quote, three-day zone reconnaissance of Tel Afar designed to force the enemy into the Sarai district and allow the AIF, or anti-Iraqi forces, only one means of escape a predetermined path to a location south of the city. End quote. With 3,000 American troops and 5,500 Iraqis committed to the mission, McMaster aligned 2nd Squadron to the east side of the city and 1st Squadron to the west side of the city. Attacking from north to south, the regiment and its Iraqi partners intended to split the city, isolating the insurgent-held Sarai district. During the first few days, the fighting was intense, with tanks, Bradleys, and Hellfire missiles used in street-to-street fighting against insurgents. Over the course of a week, 2nd Squadron conducted a methodical clearing operation, searching every building as they closed in on Sarai District. As fighting raged on one street, other elements of 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment would pause to evacuate civilians only blocks away. Sunni residents who were afraid to evacuate south through Shia areas were transported by Iraqi army vehicles and, quote, screened, given humanitarian assistance, offered temporary shelter, and released, end quote. The fight continued for more than a month. By the end of the operation in October, the regiment had killed over 150 insurgents and captured almost 600 at the cost of two Americans killed and 11 wounded totals significantly lower than the operation in Fallujah the previous November. The operation highlighted the progress of the Iraqi army, which, when paired with Special Forces ODAs, fought alongside McMaster's soldiers. Unlike previous performances of the Iraqi Security Forces, the Iraqis stood, fought, and took casualties. Eight were killed and 19 wounded, although the casualties again disproportionately came from the 1st Commando Battalion, previously known as the 36th Commando Battalion. The operation was a milestone, as it was the first time since the fall of Saddam that Iraqi forces outnumbered U.S. forces in a major operation. As in the August 2004 Battle of Najaf, however, the Iraqi Security Forces' performance in Tel Afar was overstated by MNFI and Multinational Security Transition Command Iraq, or MNSTCI, with both commands incorrectly declaring that regular Iraqi units had been, quote, employed as independent maneuver elements, end quote, under the command and control of an Iraqi headquarters. Other challenges became clear after the battle had concluded. Although the operation successfully won over much of Tel Afar's population, which had expected a repeat of Black Typhoon, the operation had allowed a number of insurgents to flee to safe havens, such as Lake Tartar, north of Baghdad. After clearing the city, McMaster pushed the regiment's combat power off the larger forward operating bases and into small combat outposts that were comprised of U.S. and Iraqi soldiers and arranged in a grid across the urban terrain, usually within sight of one another. This establishment of combat outposts ran counter to MNFI guidance to consolidate U.S. forces on forward operating bases, and it reflected the most important tenet of McMaster's strategy, protecting the population. It also meant the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment would no longer commute to the areas it was responsible for, but instead maintain a constant presence within the community. Also unlike many coalition operations, once the mission was over, the combat outposts did not recede like the tide. They remained in place to build the trust between coalition forces and Iraqi civilians that was essential to providing intelligence and to provide a venue to mentor Iraqi army interactions with the population. Within a week after the battle ended, Teafar's electricity was restored, its schools reopened, and new construction had started. As the projects began to restore a sense of normality, McMaster moved to rebuild Telafar's local police force, which had disintegrated during the battle. Seeing the police as one of the most important components of counterinsurgency operations, he had obtained MNSTCI's approval to fill three successive police academy classes with telefaris carefully screened by local sheiks, regimental counterintelligence personnel, and informants who could recognize insurgent supporters. After the recruits completed their training, regimental officers hand-picked prospective police leaders and sent them to training, filling the police leadership cadre with trusted officers who had little inclination for corruption or sectarianism. When the police chief that succeeded Jabouri began using his force for personal vendettas, McMaster convinced senior Iraqi parliamentarian Haider Abadi, later to become Iraq's prime minister, to have the police chief replaced immediately. The restructuring of the police also gave the regiment an opportunity to align boundaries for the Iraqi police, Iraqi army, and coalition force units, creating a unity of effort that had not previously existed. For a time, Tel Afar was an impressive example of what could be done when sufficient coalition forces employed proper counterinsurgency tactics with the full support of their higher headquarters. Yet, Tel Afar's good fortune would not last long. Within months of the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment's departure in February 2006, the city would again see a minimal coalition presence, and its security would deteriorate again. The Battle for the Western Euphrates as additional coalition forces concentrated in western Anbar, coalition leaders began to realize how badly the security situation had deteriorated in the western Euphrates region that Abu Musab al-Zarqawi aimed to make an Al Qaeda emirate. This proto-Islamic state, which had begun in Hit in the early summer, had expanded to Haditha, Haklania, and Barwana by late summer and early fall, as in Hit. With each new conquest, AQI established Sharia courts, command structures, and intelligence and security cells. This expansion of territory led to a growth in complexity and bureaucracy, with the jihadist emirate developing detailed record-keeping, robust finances, and security infrastructure down to the city block level. As AQI evolved from an insurgent organization to a quasi-government, Its leaders became intensely interested in determining religious justification for their actions and in explaining the Sharia rationale for maintaining order in their new territories. Coalition attempts to retake AQI-controlled territory led to heavy fighting. During an unexpected four-day battle in Haditha in early August, Insurgents wiped out an entire six-man Marine sniper team in an ambush and later destroyed a Marine Assault Amphibious Vehicle, LVTP-7, with an Improvised Explosive Device, or IED. The LVTP-7 attack killed 14 Marines and their Iraqi interpreter, making it the deadliest IED attack for U.S. troops since the start of the war. The destruction of the lightly armored LVTP-7 highlighted the fact that the Marines and some other coalition units were fighting the war with force protection means that had fallen behind IED technology. The Army requirement for 8,186 up-armored high-mobility multipurpose wheeled vehicles, or HMMWV, was 99% filled by November 2005. However, the marine contingent in Iraq had only 33% of its 2,715 vehicle requirement, and in fall 2005, many marine units were still maneuvering through the increasingly dangerous Euphrates Valley in basic model HMMWVs with armor plates welded on the vehicles. At the same time, an MNFI initiative to add electronic countermeasures to vehicles was slow to develop, fielding just 17% of MNFI's total requirement by November. These shortfalls added up to the costly fact that coalition units were struggling to keep up with the insurgency's advances in IED production and use. Shortly after the Haditha battle at the end of August, insurgent attacks in Kuseba led to intense fighting that culminated in multiple airstrikes. During four days of battle, coalition aircraft dropped a surprising amount of ordnance four guided bomb unit or GBU-38 500-pound joint direct attack munitions, 11 GBU-12 500-pound Paveway-2 laser-guided bombs, and 10 Maverick air-to-ground missiles, in addition to rockets and strafing runs. Also in August, elements of the Iraqi Special Operations Forces Brigade, now comprising the 1st Commando Battalion and the Iraqi Counterterrorism Force, deployed to Anbar with their Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force, or CJSOTF, advisors, to reinforce the Marines. Paired with Marines from Regimental Combat Team 2, they assaulted Haklania, fighting block-to-block and discovering a seven-story hotel rigged to explode as coalition forces entered the building. In an attempt to stem the flow of insurgents across the Euphrates River, In early September, MNFW used marine fixed-wing aircraft and Army M270A1 guided multiple launch rocket systems to destroy two bridges outside Al-Qaim, near the Syrian border. Demonstrating the challenges associated with the often short-term perspectives of a one-year or seven-month rotational policy, the next marine unit rotating into the area discovered that the destruction of the bridges had infuriated the local population because, quote, the bridge served not only as a link to commerce and economic development, but also a conduit to relationships, families, and a complex social network with far reaching effects. End quote. Seven months after the two bridges were destroyed, an assault float bridge was installed as a replacement, which in turn was replaced by a permanent bridge eight months later at the cost of $6.5 million. A series of indecisive smaller battles followed in October, including Operation Iron Fist, which amassed over 1,000 Marines against AQI fighters in the villages of Sada and Karabila, and Operation Rivergate, which pitted 2,500 Marines of Regimental Combat Team 2 against AQI in Haditha, Haklania, and Barwana. During these operations, MNFW killed at least 41 insurgents while losing 5 soldiers and Marines. The Western Euphrates River Valley, or Werv campaign culminated in November with MNFW's Operation Steel Curtain, a 16-day clearing of Kuseba, Karabila, and Ubaidi, the town's outlying Al-Qa'im. To further increase combat power for the operation, CENTCOM sent its theater reserve, the 13th Marine Expeditionary Unit, ashore in mid-October, after which the unit embarked on a 558-kilometer road march to Al-Assad Air Base. With more than 4,500 soldiers and Marines, Operation Steel Curtain was the largest operation in MNFW since the November 2004 Battle of Fallujah. As they cleared the rest of towns, U.S. troops killed 139 insurgents and detained 388 others, while losing 10 Marines killed and 59 soldiers and Marines wounded, and while calling in no fewer than 67 airstrikes. At the operational level, the WERV would succeed in its clearest objective, ensuring the late 2005 elections would occur unhindered. Such an accomplishment was no easy feat, as al-Qaeda in Iraq and Zarqawi were determined to prevent other Sunnis, worn down by months of intense fighting, from reconciling with the coalition and choosing political engagement. During two months of brutal fighting, MNFW reported killing 529 fighters and detaining another 1,584. This progress was fragile, for as the combat power that had been surged into Anbar receded yet again, tactical units would once more have to expand their footprint and cover larger swaths of territory. The impact of AQI's losses was also blunted somewhat by its leader's ability to melt away during the fighting, only to re-emerge later with additional domestic recruits and foreign fighters. 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines and Lieutenant Colonel Julian Alford in Al-Qa'im. Most of the operations in the Werv followed a typical pattern. Thinly-stretched coalition forces cleared terrain in brutal battles, only to leave days or weeks later because insufficient forces existed to hold the vast expanses of Anbar. However, the 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines in Al-Qa'im, were an exception as their commander, Lieutenant Colonel Julian Dale Alford, had decided ahead of the operation to take a different approach. Arriving in Qaim with his battalion in late August during a normally scheduled Marine unit rotation, Alford had declared to his skeptical regimental commander that he intended to go into Qaim and stay there. It was a difficult task in a city that was immediately adjacent to AQI's most active foreign fighter facilitation base in the town of Albu Kamal, a few dozen meters away on the Syrian side of the border. Like McMaster, Alfred was a student of counterinsurgency theory who had spent considerable time preparing his battalion intellectually for its Iraq deployment by reading classic studies such as David Galula's Pacification in Algeria, Francis Bing West's The Village, and the 1940 Marine Corps Small Wars Manual. He had also led his battalion in a 2004 combat deployment to Afghanistan, where the unit had tested and honed their tactics against an active insurgency. As McMaster was doing simultaneously in Tel Afar, Alfred emphasized the primacy of protecting the population in counterinsurgency operations, describing what he saw as the center of gravity in the simple epithet, quote, It's the people, stupid. End quote. He warned his troops to avoid creating more of what he called POIs or pissed-off Iraqis by carefully managing escalation of force incidents, indirect fire, and close air support. Alfred likened proper kinetic operations to bow hunting, which required tremendous patience, stealth, persistence, proper target selection, and close proximity to the target. Alfred later recalled, quote, I talked to the Marines about killing discreetly and selectively. I used the bow hunter mentality. You have to avoid complacency. You need patience, persistence, and presence at all times to kill discreetly and selectively and without killing the wrong people. To kill the bad guy and not the 99% of Iraqis who were good people. End quote. This latter point required living and operating closely among the Anbari population in a way MNFW units were not used to doing. Instead of consolidating in large bases as MNFI was instructing units across the theater to do, Alfred expanded his battalion's footprint into dispersed battle positions. Upon its arrival in Al-Qa'im in late August, Alfred's six-company battalion held only three positions but used offensive operations in October to fight their way into several towns in the Al-Qa'im district, and create four new platoon outposts. In a change from most of the rest of the Werv operations, once Alfred's men fought to gain a foothold in new areas, they did not withdraw, but instead looked to expand their local presence further. Throughout November, the unit grew its footprint to a total of 16 platoon positions in the Al-Qa'im area. Each platoon outpost was a bare-bones affair, consisting essentially of earth-filled HESCO barriers dropped in place in the outline of a platoon position. There were no showers, morale telephones, or internet, and the Marines had to resort to burning their own waste with diesel fuel. Quote, you can't be in those big FOBs with Kellogg Brown and Root, the internet, and all the different things we were doing, end quote, Alfred described after the operation. Quote, you have got to split up and be where you can protect the population. End quote. As a result, the battalion's positions were usually in the middle of a town where the Marines had only to walk outside their position to be among Iraqis. Mindful of the impact that the Quartering Act had on pre-revolutionary America, Alford eschewed the practice of commandeering Iraqi houses as coalition outposts, thereby avoiding the creation of more, quote, pissed off Iraqis, end quote. To strengthen relationships between the Marine outposts and local Iraqi communities, Alfred encouraged his Marines to eat on the local economy, a practice that produced a microeconomic boom as Iraqi merchants provided a takeout food service to the battle positions for cash. The principle extended to 3rd Battalion's 6th Marines foot patrols, which Alfred's men nicknamed, quote, eats on the streets, end quote, for the way in which they were conducted meal to meal, with Marines stopping at food vendors in Iraqi neighborhoods as they patrolled. To force the majority of his troops to patrol on foot and interact with Iraqis, Alford limited each patrol to a single accompanying vehicle. He also banned the concept of, quote, presence patrols, end quote, instead requiring each patrol to have a specified mission. Many of these patrols were related to the counterinsurgency precept of population control, conducting censuses of the population and buildings near each battle position to enable Alford's men to understand who and what was around them while compiling detailed records for follow-on forces. Throughout 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines' rotation in Al-Qa'im, Alford also aimed to recreate the successful model of the combined action platoons used during the Vietnam War. Each of Alfred's battle positions included a platoon of marines and a platoon of partnered Iraqi army troops living, eating, and working in the same place, a rarity in the aftermath of the December 2004 Maraz dining facility bombing. Throughout their deployment, Alfred impressed on his units an enforced partnership approach. If ever discovering any of his units conducting a mission without an equally sized Iraqi force, Alfred would send them back to the main forward operating base at Camp Al-Qa'im in Shame, replacing them with a unit that had better embraced his combined action concept. By the end of the unit's rotation in March 2006, Al-Qa'im, an area that had been under Zarqawi and Al-Qaeda in Iraq's near-complete control in mid-2005, was well on its way to returning to coalition control, with the city itself firmly in marine hands and with the insurgency slowly receding from outlying districts. When Casey visited Alfred's unit near the end of the battalion's rotation, the stunned MNFI commander told Alfred and Colonel Stephen Davis, the Regimental Combat Team 2 commander, I never thought you guys could take that Al Qaim back. The Counterinsurgency Academy The counterinsurgency techniques McMaster and Alford were putting into practice coincided with the creation of a theater-level venue for training U.S. commanders in similar tactics. Based on the results of the counterinsurgency survey in late summer, Casey approved Hicks's recommendation to create a, quote, COIN, or counterinsurgency, academy, end quote, in Taji, just north of Baghdad, to ensure incoming leaders had a baseline understanding of counterinsurgency principles and their application in the Iraq operating environment. Casey mandated that all leaders of incoming brigade combat teams, from company commander to brigade commander, would attend the one-week course. Casey had put significant pressure on the MNFI staff to stand up the organization quickly, and it was teaching its first classes by November. Among its first lecturers were McMaster and Alford, whose respective successes Casey recognized by personally presenting each officer with a bronze star as their deployments ended. Alfred was the only battalion commander that Casey honored with such a presentation. However, while Casey clearly recognized what successful coin operations looked like, he had a greater challenge in communicating and implementing that vision across the force that was rotating into the Iraq theater. In some ways, the Coin Academy was a reflection of the continuing disconnect between the Army's institutional training base and the operational needs of the force in Iraq. Ideally, Hicks noted, U.S. units should be learning the lessons of the Coin Academy much earlier in their training cycle, perhaps before conducting training at the Army's combat training centers, but the U.S. training base was lagging behind in accomplishing this task. The Coin Academy remained in operation in Taji well past Casey's tenure as commander and ultimately received mixed marks for achieving its purpose. To a degree, the Coin Academy epitomized Casey's response to Hicks and Sepp's Coin Survey by selecting a tactical solution to address the host of strategic and operational problems that the survey had laid bare. Special Operations Forces in Anbar To support Casey's operational level effort to re establish control of the Iraqi Syrian border, other SOF also pushed west, establishing themselves at the remote base in Rawa. These SOF were deemed so important to the overall mission that for Operation Say-Aid Hunter, which ran from mid-July to August, they were MNCI's main effort. There they were paired with conventional forces to an unprecedented degree, and by October, two infantry companies along with their battalion headquarters were placed under the SOF headquarters' tactical control. It was the first time since the invasion that SOF were locally made the main effort and given conventional forces to support them. The model was successful enough that by November, an entire infantry battalion was placed under SOF control. The intensity of the fight in Anbar was unlike anything the special operations elements had previously experienced. Their assault forces frequently faced well-trained foreign fighters dug in with sandbagged defensive positions, crew-served weapons, night vision goggles, and quick reaction forces. Many foreign fighters expected to die, and either wore suicide vests or wired the entire structure they occupied with explosives to be detonated when the special operators entered the building. Demonstrating the level of insurgent resolve, a handful of SOF raids had to be extracted under pressure with the support of AC-130 and rotary wing fires. This resulted in the increased use on some missions of a, quote, call-out, end quote, in which a megaphone was used to instruct noncombatants to leave a surrounding building. If the fighters inside did not surrender, or if they opened fire, the building would then be reduced with an airstrike, rather than risk troops' lives. The SOF participation in the WERV campaign was a large-scale effort focusing on the insurgent sanctuaries of Al-Qa'im and Haditha. Raid after raid eliminated IED factories and killed or captured Al-Qaeda in Iraq's senior leaders. A series of operations in September 2005 by a Joint Special Operations Task Force, or JSOTF, included the rescue of a U.S. hostage partly based on intelligence and leads from the 3rd Infantry Division in Baghdad. By November, the commander of the JSOTF decided to keep three battalion-level task forces in Iraq, a measure that required shifting additional forces from external locations and created significant stress on the force. In the same month, the command captured senior terrorist bomb maker Ali al-Fadil in Anbar. Fadil had returned to his native London in September 2003 after being seriously injured by his own bombs in Iraq. In the United Kingdom, or UK, he received prosthetic limbs and then returned to his chosen profession, building bombs that were used in the July 7, 2005 attacks against London before escaping back to Iraq. End of Chapter 17, Part 1 Innovation in the Face of War Summer to Fall 2005 Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021